Hello and welcome to the conversation here at TRSI, the right side. And I am delighted today to be joined by Ed West, Hello. author, blogger, commentator, depressed conservative, son of, brother of, all sorts of things, of cousin even of many illuminated people. But uh, Ed has just published a book, The Small Men on the Wrong Side of History. Now, when I saw the title, I knew this was a book I would have to, I would have to buy and even read. If I am at least, I wouldn't say I'm a small man, but I'm a short man on the wrong side of history. And I thought, I really wanted to find out. But before we start, Ed, I have to say, and I'm assuming here that uh, Wikipedia is as accurate as it always is. Your bibliography is fantastic. I'm looking here at the list of books by Ed West, starting off with How to Pull Women, (laughs) The Science of Seduction, How to Get Hot Women into Bed, The Ultimate Seduction Techniques for Real Guys, that was the same book. That was, um, <laughs> when I was uh, after university, I worked in men's magazines for a while. So I did some small, uh, you know, like toilet books for a publishing company. There were, one of them was actually in grooming as well. I mean, grooming in the, you know, the old sense of the word, which is also <laughs> ironic since I'm the most shambolic person in the world. And yeah, one of them was House for Women, which my girlfriend, now wife, found very, she said, how ironic. But um, yeah, it translates into Russian as well, I think as... How to, how, yeah, how to get hot women in bed, hot women into bed. You have the diversity illusion, and you have to be careful there. It's not the diversity delusion. No, there is, a, yeah, Heather MacDonald wrote the diversity delusion, but yeah, that's... Um, but um, let's hope you're not quite as snippy as Heather. I, a lot of time for Heather's work and everything, but she's always a bit cross, Heather. Really, I've never met her. I know she gets a lot of stick from people. Uh, Which is why I, I'm saying that I see this when I see her uh, giving lectures and on podcasts and stuff I don't know her intimately at all. Then, what I'm imagining, are these children's books? The 1060s? Yeah, the history no. Um, no, they're kind of like young. They can be, I think they're classified as young adult, but they're, um, they're just sort of intro, beginners history books. So, you know, they're... There's no swearing them, so like a, chi- a teenager could read them. You could let your child read them, but and they're aimed at young adults. The Path of Martyrs, Charles Martel, The Battle of Tours, and The Birth of Europe, which is suddenly we launches us into the, the world of Catholic hagiography. It's a, it's an interesting, I don't know, pot of full of, of literary achievement. I have a friend who it's will be fine. absolutely obsessed with The Battle of Tours. I'm sure I'm, I should get him onto it. Well, I was just very, I was actually just, I was writing some other books and it kept coming up and I couldn't, there weren't any other books about it except from the Victorian era, which you can get on Kindle, which are always fun to read Victorian history books, but they seem a bit slightly out of date and some mm. of the language is a bit uh, not successful these days. Um, so I just thought, well, I'd write a short thing about it from what I read myself. And so, uh, so well, to be I fair, just really said, when he wanted to read a book, he wrote one. So it's only a short book, but. Um, it's an incredibly important moment in European history. And I think that if you, if you ask people, put Tour on a map, or you showed people where Tour is on a map of France and told them that was, the, that was this decisive battle between Moorish Spain and the Christian Franks, they would be amazed. Yeah, it's, it's very far north. It is very far north indeed. And you think, now, whether or not if they had won what it would have meant, but we don't know. But we, it, 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 it's, uh, it's, and it's basically unknown. But then we come to small men in the wrong side. Now, to be honest, I, I got this book wrong. I had it, well, in the sense of my expectations. 
It is, is it, in a way, it's a bit of an apologia pro vita sua. Uh, am I, would you say, that, is that right? I wanted to do, I wanted to do it in the personal style because um, I, I was actually inspired to write it after reading The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt like 10 years ago. So I started to write it in 2011 because I was writing all these I was writing a blog telegraph and occasional comment pieces and it was very like I'd be writing you know very much like culture war sort of angry stuff mm. against the society them um, and I read this book and it was really explaining why people believe they do and why people get angry and it kind of I found it quite therapeutic like there's no point getting angry at people because they just they have different emotional flavors in their lives and they they see the world differently um so partly I wanted to explain to you know, people, my contemporaries, most of whom are liberals or progressives of various stripes, why, you know, not everyone thinks like them. And it, you don't assume that someone's bad, like an evil person, because they don't have the same views as you on all these issues. So, yeah, I wanted to sort of make it a human story because most of my contemporaries aren't really becoming conservative. I mean, I'm in my early 40s now. They all still identify pretty much on the left of various sorts. Uh, and that's kind of become the default. And I sort of noticed this as I got further into my 30s. And you think, oh, everyone becomes conservative now. We'll all, we'll all be at the conservative club. And then you know, I joined the conservative party, got to go back to church, had children, all the sort of classic markers of becoming, mm -hmm. a, becoming your dad, sort of, everyone does. Um, but even other people who have kids weren't really becoming conservative. So that, that sort of disturbed me. I thought, well, you know, what's the future going to be? And then, and so then the final point that made me really fully going to the book was after the election 2017 when I just realized how uh, unpopular the message was and you know the conservatives is so badly amongst young people particularly it was just it was not just young people but like people in early middle age who were completely repulsed by the whole the whole notion um, and that's obviously one side of the story because I live in you know I live in a sort of very remaining part of North London and it's a very it's full of, sort of graduates and it wouldn't quite be Dublin for but it would be it would be a nice equivalent of someone nice but south side dublin end mm -hmm. um so maybe i'm not representative of the country as a whole but I, I do tend to think that where elites go in terms of beliefs the rest of the population just tends to follow so that's the way things are going it's interesting you use the word repulsed and i think that's in the context of height uh, height uses uh, disgust yeah um as a moral feeling and, and I think, 2011, you were ahead of the trend there. Um, I think Jonathan Haidt has come on a lot of people's, he's been part of that, well, explosion, but with people like, um, Doug, I associate him with people like, with, with say, Jordan, that Jordan Peterson. Right, yeah. Explosion. The, although yeah. I, I find Haidt, just personally, although I think Peterson does a lot of great stuff, I, I find Haidt personally more satisfying. Right. I think he's great. And uh, he's a lovely guy as well, which helps. <laughs> He genuinely seems to try and be tr trying to get a hang of it, trying to understand the thing. But he, you say repulsive. That's one of these heights would say, he says that so much of this is about the, this. Well, he starts out with moral foundational theories, and it's, there are seven yeah. principles. Conservatives use prin five principles. Liberals tend to use two. I think it's six, isn't it? This is a seven. You know, I take it. Conservatives are all of them, but yeah, liberals have like three of them mainly. Mm -hmm. But he says the thing is when you when you when you approach sacred belief, yeah, something that people believe as a as a not not in the, not classically religious, but ha a belief which is essentially religious, and they have and to I choose. It is, yeah, it's triggering the same part of the brain. I'd, I mean, I would be convinced. I'd be amazed if it didn't trigger the same part of the brain. 
as blasphemy. He, he would say that if if you are given the choice, if you, almost between reason and your religious belief coming to conflict, well, then reason gets thrown under the bus, yeah. irrespective of whether you're a conservative or a liberal or a progressive or whatever. So that yeah. we need to be aware of this and aware of how we would do it. And I think this is something we'll, we'll, we'll get into. He, when he talks about what brings him to, to write that book, it's, it's as an angry liberal. Right. He's annoyed because the Democrats have lost an election. The Republicans have done it again. The Republicans seem to be better at this kind of thing. Sorry about that. My dog's going mad. My family forced a dog upon me and she just, just, just barks at everything in the street. Anyway, she'll still stop. <laughs> so I, that this sense that, so he wanted to understand the processes involved in convincing people or talking to people about these issues so that the Democrats could do it and win an election. Then he started reading all this conservative stuff and he started thinking, some, some of it started to make sense. Particularly, I think it was important was his insight that when we come to institutions, certain kinds of institutions, that it's an awful lot easier to break them or to unmake them than it is to repair them. That there is a fragility to our institutions or evolved institutions that we have to be an awful lot more careful about. And I think that's something maybe later on we'll get onto because we live in, there seems to be a, a profligacy at the moment for no particular reason in attacking institutions because we don't understand things we don't understand we don't care about we go on now you um you you refer to at the in the book at the distinct in early christianity you, you're trying to sort of sort the sheep and the goats or the left and the right or whatever where this impulse starts or how it manifests itself you refer to augustine and pelagius yeah and you're saying that augustine is the well Pelagius is kind of the optimist. Yeah. He believes the Pelagian, I suppose theologically, the Pelagian heresy is that you can achieve salvation without grace. That merely by, through your own actions, putting yourself up by your bootstraps, you can actually make yourself good. You can, you can be, whereas Augustine is very much aware of the fallen nature of man. And this is later on, you find this in Calvin, the idea of the total depravity of man. Um, I just why did you curious you why, why did you go for Augustine and Pelagius? Well, I, I think a lot of people just started off with Aristotle and Plato. I, I suppose um, I was partly partly I suppose for space. I, I I needed to put I wanted to do sort of background on the sort of origins of, of left or right. So I choose them and then I choose Hobbes and Rousseau later mm-hmm. as another. And it's obviously very binary and um, a simple version of it. I suppose it's because I see all. I see all politics in terms of religion. I mean, that is my central belief, really, that politics is an extension of religion and it comes from religion. And our politics, especially both left and right, are sort of their own different variations of Christianity. And I think that has much more of an um, influence. I, didn't, I mean, I did mention the ancient Greeks briefly with Cassandra and you know, um, yeah. the, ultimate, the original realist about things going. Um, but yeah, maybe that's, that's my particular... That's my particular upbringing, and I see it in, in terms of an extension, and that's why I look. I, I look at the religious analogies, the Reformation, and the and the rise of Christianity, and I because I, I see the new thing as a sort of a new a new faith, really. Do you think that politics has always been religious? It's always been a form of religion, or or perhaps was it less religious in the past, or are we just going through a different manifestation? It's always been basically the same. I think it's yeah, basically. It was, but in the Christian era, 
it's mm -hmm. always it's always been religious to some extent. I mean, I don't think you can really. I mean, you can look at personality types that quite match onto left and right. They go back a very, very long way. And the idea of mankind, of whether we're fallen or whether we're good, maps onto left or right, basically. And that's why, that's why I brought um, back to Augustine um, and Rousseau and Hobbes. But I mean, until only the, the 18th century can we really talk about left and right in an actual formalised um, sense. Because before that, it doesn't really entirely make sense, doesn't I mean, were the... Were the Protestant reformers were they left or right wing? You couldn't really, you couldn't really exactly map them onto it because they were quite conservative in some way and they were quite radical in others. But I, I definitely do think that the the personality types can go back a long way into our religious roots in Europe. I suppose if if you think of the reformers historically as being iconoclasts. You, I suppose you could rather as a, that's a that's a left position yeah it's a radical it's an idea they want to overthrow a, a uh, an institution which is the main thing and i do look at the idea you know the the interesting thing about conservatism in britain um being very much a way of articulating against enthusiasm you know religious enthusiasm so by its nature uh you know conservatism is is, is sort of secular in britain because it's, it's arguing against against the puritanical movement of the 17th and 18th century. You've read Knox's book? Which one? Have you read the book, Enthusiasm? You've come across it? No, no. I'm sure, I'm sure your mother has. Um, sure. it, it's, just, it's just called Enthusiasm. And it's an analysis of the reform movement as an enthusiasm, as a form of an enthusiasm. And I think it's, it's, it sounds probably it's like it's very relevant today since we're having a, a bit of a revival of enthusiasm in one way. But, maybe anticipating the conversation isn't one of the problems that we have today or it seems to me that one of the problems with the current political dispensation on the left is that they have they've adopted this religious superstructure but they have adopted this a radically calvinist one we are when we see these people on their knees seeking forgiveness people washing feet or adopting the semiotics of a liturgy or, or of a religion yeah. But I don't see an I don't see the redemption narrative here. Yeah, it's it's Christianity without redemption, isn't it? And um, and some of the descriptions of of at the seventeenth century in England when it when Calvinism was um, at its strongest, and there were accounts of people having what are clearly really extreme psychological problems resulting from their fear of that they were damned, and people were going through uh, really forms of mental torture because of there was no answer to this question really it was just leaving you hanging down but there was at least a hope that you could be saved now amongst the current faith it just it seems like where is the hope there isn't there is no hope i mean especially if you're i mean if you're if you're white you're damned basically anyway right i mean well, it comes down to that yeah well, that's it. it's whip, whip yourself and beat yourself and hope that you'll be pardoned by some theoretical sort of magical black person i mean which it comes down to it <laughs> you you I mean, say so people... bad, i don't even know how to i wouldn't even know how to describe this to people if you know if you're stuck in a coma for 20 years what was going on now it would be you you said whip yourself or beat yourself have you seen did you see the latest yeah. pictures i think because... that's that's makeup though isn't it i mean they're not actually beating themselves yet are they i mean i, I don't know. judge these guys are like the flagellants right you yeah, know, the they are um, and then we're similar, we're going to have the dancing mania, that'll be the next one, and we'll have the, <laughs> they'll just start breaking down dancing, so we'll have sort of heart attacks. 
we'll have the, the, uh, the free spirits. It will be very, you know, it's, it's very much post post plague madness. But dance macabre. Yeah, it's I think very... the next thing will probably be some sort of mass suicide. I mean, I I can't even say it as a jokey way. I think there probably will be something like that, something because it's 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 so insane. I can yeah. see why people say you're you are you're upbeat and, and cheerful, all right. <laughs> you have that name. So everyone who listen who interviews me is like an hour of listening to Radiohead. By the end of it, they're just nobody ever off. listened to an hour of Radiohead. Not even Radiohead. I guarantee it. <laughs> Never happened. Okay. Conservative. What is yeah. conservative? Okay. Augustine, the roots of it, we have the sense of you've got Burke. But you have a quote from Oakshot. I can't I don't know if you have it on the top of your head, but it's, I think it's a quote that people use a lot. It's to, to prefer, well, the last line of the quote, if I can remember, is to prefer present laughter over future... It's to prefer the familiar to the unknown, to prefer the tried to the untried, the fact to mystery, the actual to the possible, the limited to the unbounded, the near to the distance, the sufficient to the superabundance. The convenient to the perfect, present laughter to utopian bliss. There you go. See, I'm terrible at remembering things. Thanks for Google. But there's a word. There's the word. There's a, the utopian. Yeah. There's, there, are lots, there are lots of modalities we could use. But one that I, I've come across and I think is used is this sense. And one of the things that makes any system dangerous, whether it's left or right, is when it gets into this utopian mode. Because... I don't know, it's said that Eric Hopspawn was once asked, well, Eric, if it had taken another 20 million to achieve the, you know, the proletarian work, the workers' paradise, would that have been worth it? And the answer is yes. That's the scary thing when you're talking about utopia. Yeah. That just, if we can just kill enough people, if we can just get it right, then we'll have utopia. And that's Point what I think. You never get utopia. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? You, from, you will never make anything straight from the crooked timber of man. It's, yeah, I mean, the Hobson thing is funny because, uh, you know, he defended Stalin right, right to the end. There was never any, he didn't drop, you know, he didn't drop the, the idea in 56 or in 68 or ever. And also he was a man who, who never really suffered any, I'm not saying he should be ostracized by society, but he was fated and, you know, awarded and treated like a, a very well-loved figure in British society and yet he supported like one of the most horrible regimes in the world I mean like what a mass murdering regime that killed millions of people um I suppose because you know people still give it a pass because it was all in a good cause wasn't it it was it was they were fighting for a noble thing and people will allow that they were allowed 20 or 30 million at a, at a small human level does it is does that annoy you constantly annoy you that if you're on the left, you can get away with, there is almost nothing you can say, even to this day in the discourse of leftism, that makes you a pariah on the left. The boundary is not policed at all. That's, yeah, it's very frustrating. But again, as you were saying, you know, we were saying about, if you're a conservative, you just, if you complain about these things, you just sound like a bit of a whinge. Uh, you know, we have a very like strict and, we have a strict boundary about well, where, how far we're allowed to go, but it always moves slightly, slightly, slightly to the centre. So, you know, if you get caught five years too late, whatever. Well, you can expound any, uh, even violent organisations on the left, and it's fine. But again, it is just, I mean, partly, of course, it is because the Soviet Union wasn't as bad as Nazi Germany. But um, 
you know, even, I was at like a, a drinks party in, in our neighborhood recently. And uh, it, was, it was around Christmas. And I just started saying to one of the neighbors, oh, did you see that film? Should I make a conversation about the death of Stalin? Mm-hmm. You know, very funny film. And he said, no, I don't think that's very funny. He said, why? He said, well, I just don't think it was funny to make, you know, to make fun of him when he was trying his best. This guy was like in his 60s or something. Right? He was living, he was living in a realized area of, crap, of like North London in a two million pound house or whatever. He said, I said, what? He said, he was just, you know, he was really up against it. He was just trying his best. Um, and, and I'm just saying, well, I didn't really try. He could have tried a bit harder not to kill like 20 million people. That's and I think when I was making, what facial expressions do I make while this guy starts defending Stalin's records? And luckily my daughter just came along and said, Daddy, can we go now? So I'm just, I'm <laughs> but, um, actually, that's just really weird. How can you talk to a guy? He just seems perfectly normal. He's defending Stalin. To me, that's, that's just, that's... That, that's beyond, that's beyond like, acceptable, isn't it? There has to be a, 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 dis- a dissonance in there somewhere, which is just bizarre. Uh, years ago, I remember being in a bar, and it was, it was, the, it was Stalin's birthday. And in, 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 the, in the place next door to the pub I was in, sort of Maria pub, uh, was a, a co-op, which was a bar which was in the co-op, and it was very lefty, anarcho-syndalist, whatever. And a guy came in, he was half cut, and he had a picture of Stalin, and he was waving it around and saying, Stalin's birthday, the great man, blah, blah, blah. Now, he was unbeknown to him, the bar that I was in was actually owned by, I would say, a guy who was not metaphorically a fascist. I'd say if you went back to his, you went into his drawers, you would have found a few black shirts, genuine, actual black shirts. But I was in conversation with a guy at the time who was the, he was the correspondent, the Times correspondent, Sunday Times correspondent for, uh, for Italy at the time, who's, who came from a Russian family and whose grandparents and most of his family had actually been killed by Stalin. He did kill quite a few people after all. And it was one of those, you know those moments, like that Marshall McLuhan moment that Woody Allen has, you know, wouldn't you love if? And it was that moment where the guy comes in and he's giving up a stand, and you actually have to have, somebody says, and he says, he didn't really kill that many. And there was actually, you've got a guy, he said, and Selmer just laced into him. But it made no, not a bit of difference because you knew that in the end, in that guy's head, if he if Stalin killed them, they probably needed killing. Yeah. So at the end of the day, yeah, you can't. What's well, the famous thing? You can't make an omelet without making eggs, and then the responsible. Where's the omelet? Yeah. But quite a few broken eggs by the end of it. No, I think yes. I mean, the anti-utopianism, I suppose, is 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 the is the core of conservatism. It's it's the belief that you only work with what you you know. We have a a human system should suit the human race and we are imperfect and we're never going to have a um, society free of ills and attempts to create those kind of societies almost always go wrong i mean this i get i mean to bring it back to the current issue i mean today's you know today's sort of dominant ideology where you want to call it progressivism you know the social justice movement shares a lot of things in common with communism in those sense they, they have it has a utopian mission this one is the elimination of racism Again, a completely impossible goal. You want to eliminate prejudice from people. That's just not going to happen because human beings have prejudice. You know, human beings are tribal. And, you know, that's one of the ironic things is they're so determined to eliminate tribalism in one sense. They're creating a much, much more vicious tribalism for the 21st century between people with different political beliefs. Um, I so whenever I you know, see any of those kind of 
those kind of statements, oh, you know, it's our job to eliminate racism, saying, well, that, that's a sort of uh, a relative of the, let's abolish private property, let's abolish greed, let's abolish the family, which was another Soviet thing, which has sort of some similarities with some progressive politics now. I mean, I don't want to overreg it because there yeah, are... Yeah, you don't have to overreg it. I mean, you go, you go straight to the... You go to the website of BLM and it's, it's one of the explicit aims of, the Black, of Black Lives Matter is to disrupt the European nuclear family. Right, okay. That's what it says. It's not, it's not like they're hiding it. You were very, you were very I don't know, restrained that uh, you were talking about... Um, the imperfectibility and not the utopia. You never actually went for the the that the the great phrase of Oglin that American conservatives, young American conservatives, used to wear on a T-shirt. Do not let's not imminentize the escathon. <laughs> Which, yeah. if you're going to be abstruse and difficult, I think is as good a way of doing it as anything. But basically, it means for the listener, just in case, don't try and make heaven on earth. No, I suppose to me that encapsulates. On my, I, I don't have pronouns in my Twitter bio, but the, the only thing I have is with heaven and earth we cannot make, but hell is within our compass. Yes, we're very good as a species of creating that. Um, yeah, so that's um, yeah. So okay, anti-utopianism is the core one, I suppose. Yeah, we spoke earlier. Institutions is obviously another big, big conservative central belief. Um, and, you know, well, I come to it later, well, you know, there is a problem when conservatives themselves become disillusioned with their own institutions I and mean, where do they go? And that's a problem we're having now, in, certainly in England, then also the US. Um, you, say, you say in the book, that you, th you, you, you think of fascism as a form of disgust for liberalism. Uh, did I? Yeah, well, it's a... Do you not think that, I, I don't know, it's just... There's the, the great Italian historian of fascism is a guy called Renzo de Felici, who's a liberal Italian Jew, socialist, historic Jewish historian. And Felici was always insistent, no, not everybody agreed with him, that actually fascism was a child of the revolution, child of the, the French Revolution, hmm. and shall we say, a, a legitimate, intellectually legitimate response of the bourgeois. To the Enlightenment and to the to an aspir it was an, a, a positive aspirational response in the same way as that Marx was that it's he doesn't see fascism as reactionary in the same way he says National Socialism is reactionary and Felice is very big on drawing a dis sharp and deep distinctions between yeah. fascism and National Socialism. Yeah, of course, and they were very different ideologies to start with. I mean, fascism is such a, a kind of mixture and jumble of beliefs as it starts off um and it's hard i mean it's harder to sort of identify it i think that's why it's easier just to call someone a fascist because people don't really know what it doesn't have so many set beliefs as you know marxism and all these set texts that makes it easier well fascism was a bit of a jumble and it was just i don't know i, I find it when i've studied it, it's funny quite ideologically quite thin I mean, the violence is pretty central to the whole thing, and it was born out of war, and and also yes. fear, fear of communism was, as, you know. Um, I'm aware now that I'm trying not to be the guy defending fascism, <laughs> <laughs> because that would be problematic. No, I, so, I, so I mean, it, it obviously it does. It is tainted by obviously by he fell in with the wrong crowd, so to speak. Um, 
we tend to think of fascism as national socialism, which was obviously a much was a sort of a more German infused, and obviously had quite a bit of racism thrown in there. Absolutely, and and the Italian race laws are amongst the most severe and vicious in Europe when they when they come in. I just simply yeah. say Gentile was actually a philosopher. Yeah, which Rosenberg wasn't. I'm maybe I'm maybe being a bit, you know. Um, I don't know. I don't know if dismiss is not the right word, but I don't know. I only sort of touch on that sort of briefly because I need to get to the point why why all conservatism is kind of sort of smeared by association with what happened in in the first half of the 20th century, which is I you know, it's the one thing we can never sort of get over the guilt by association. Well, of course um, which we is stuck. Which is and, stuck. And I would say conservatives have tried to be responsible policemen. Yeah. Since then. I mean the likes of William F. Buckley, when Buckley makes that break and says, okay, this is not acceptable. Yeah. This, this anti-Semitism, this form of prejudice is not acceptable within the American conservative movement. Out. And I think we have, we have a sensibility. I know that if I'm meeting with people or talking, you know when you meet people, meet people online, you're always a little bit, you're checking for those ticks. Yeah. Is he going to be a bit of a, but you mentioned that scene in from um, on the Peep Show, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Which is it's very funny. Very, yeah, and that sen- deep sense of disappointment when he discovers actually he, yeah. he's actually a genuine Nazi. He's not just another good old sort of Tory voting yeah. guy who likes Clarkson. He's actually he's genuinely a Nazi. Now, um, I wonder how many actual genuine Nazis there are out there. Oh, I mean, like there, there are. A tiny minority of a tiny minority of a tiny minority, but they make um, they attract a lot of headlines. Still, now, one of the things is, is, as we go through the book, it becomes clear is you're 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 trying to understand in in, in pretty explicitly honest way those underlying psychological temperamental things that make a person either left or right, conservative, or whatever. Yeah. And in a sense, maybe things that we therefore don't we are the product of these things rather than we're the author of them. Yeah, and you talk about the big five again. I, I'm hearing Jonathan Haidt in this. I'm hearing maybe a bit of Jordan Peterson in this. Yeah, this is. How, to what extent do you recognise yourself in this description, in the description that people ascribe to, when they look at the big five uh, personality traits, uh, where, uh, where the conservatives are and where the where the where the. Like, oh yeah, I think it's definitely. I mean, yeah, I mean, you could. I think you'd easily probably now like analyze people from their Spotify music history, how they voted. I reckon. Um, openness to ideas is the big dividing line, one of the two really big ones. Uh, conservatives are just much less likely to experience novelty, do new things, go to new places. And I'm, you know, I'm a bit like that, my friend. I wish I wasn't. There's one of the things, you know, I wish I was much more um, of a naturally open person. But people, liberals are overwhelmingly much more open than conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why artistic people tend to be more open as well and that's why the, the arts will always be slightly left of center but there's the thing you say slightly less of the arts yeah. we're living it, now obviously i say slightly now now overwhelmingly left of center but yeah. now we're living in strange times what happened i mean if you look at when i was in school a long time ago and we were doing say modernist the modernist poets which yeah. is pretty well and we did poetry after that but the 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 the, the three great figures of the 20th century, early first half of the 20th century poetry, were Pound, Eliot, and Yeats. Yeah. These were not, yeah, were, no. these were not left-wing. Now. 
you know? I, mean, yeah. I don't know if we can even talk about pound anymore. Pound is like beyond cancelled. Is there a word for like mega cancelled, super cancelled? I mean, so you, have, you have to read pound under the sheets with it with a little flashlight now. Elliot is problematic. Elliot, yeah. Yeah, Elliot. I mean, Elliot. He was, I mean, he was ostracised in his time, though, wasn't he, by the by his friends or you know the right sort of thinking people in London. Um, I bet now the difference would just be it would be 16 million people on Twitter, not ganging up on him. A friend of mine, and then we hit Yates, and Yates is probably the least problematical because he's kind of the he's most mystically kind of whatever. Yeah. Although somebody did point out to me, he said, "God, times must be really bad." He said, "Boy, people have stopped quoting Yates." Yeah. <laughs> so bad, you know, because everybody likes to trot out that line: "The centre cannot hold." Yeah. Mere blooded ties, least the best lack all conviction, the worst are full of passionate intensity, which sounds great for now, but it's so bad now that we can't even bother. We don't I know. Need... The nineteenth century, even okay, the Romantics are left wing. Well, you, the poetry has constantly produced. Conser- I mean, Tennyson, uh, Colder- later Coleridge, so lots of conservative poets. You could argue Shakespeare has deep conservative imp- impl- impulses there. Oh, definitely. Um, that, that was a paradox, yeah. I mean, lo- lots of the arts that seems to last the ages seems, to, seems very conservative, <laughs> while the things we see now all have a basic, very, very progressive message. I mean, I come to it later, you know, even the children's books of my childhood weren't particularly, you wouldn't read anything political into them, you couldn't do, really. But all the ones I, I get now for my kids are all overwhelmingly about, oh, how stereotyping is wrong and women should uh, be, fight dragons while men dress up as nurses and, you know, uh, you know equality is good. And they all have a very quite um, strong like, political message. And this is not just me being completely paranoid, deluded, conservative, although that might play a part. I mean, I think the art, the art world has become much more left-leaning than it was. And it's not necessarily because conservatives can't be edgy and weird and dangerous. I mean, Swift is a Tory. Yeah. Old-fashioned Tory hates the words. I think now now would be, the you know, there's so much satire that could be done now. Is it possible to do satire anymore? It's actually generally conservative satire, but no one will touch it. And I know the people who are, you know, I know satirists must be thinking about this stuff. I mean, like the transgender thing, you know, you could do such a, a brilliant comedy sketch about, you know, some guy just, a guy looking like you with a beard, identifying as a woman and turning up, and everyone's po-faced reaction having to pretend. And it's absurd. But no one yeah, would make that comedy. Why would you? Because your but, life would be made of misery. But is it, that's, my, that's the question. In the contemporary world of art, is satire possible? Because I saw a blue tick Twitter account say the other day, and I'm going to try and get it as close as I can, but I am paraphrasing from memory. If you are a trans woman with a penis, then your penis is biologically female. Science. I love science. Oh yeah, science. We all love science. How can you satirize that? Yeah. And when I saw it first, I genuinely, I laughed out loud spontaneously. But then you're left with, where do you go? It's, it's, I mean, everyone's laughing, but they're laughing to themselves, aren't they? They're laughing in their direct message groups, right? Because, I mean, that, this is why it's kind of sort of totalitarian. Not totalitarian in the sense of being, you know, you're going to be put in a you know, camp or anything if you get in trouble. It's just a totalitarian. Everyone has to pretend to go along with something which is just not true. And you all have to look like you're really enjoying the fact. And we all have to sort of clap along. You don't want to be the last person clapping when Comrade Starling gives a speech. 
you don't want to be, you don't you want to be the last one because that that's trouble there. But going back to what you were saying before, arts the arts generally okay, leaned left the the academy to a degree leaned left. Although in the nineteenth century, maybe not so quite so much. Even until the nineteen seventies, not so much. It was it's a very recent thing. The overwhelming. Um, so where do you think that comes from? This this super dominance. Uh, we know Jonathan Haidt has a theory about America. He says that what happens in the States is that in the academy, you have this period where after the World War II, you've the GI Bill, Greatest Generation. Many of those people are center-left, center-right, right-wing Republican types. So they maintain the balance. When they go, they're leaving at the same time as the Vietnam War, where you have the, the academy is either people who are actually trying to stay out of Vietnam are actively involved in a campaign against yeah. Vietnam. So the academy becomes a place of left. And then that becomes this process whereby increase and it becomes more and more left. And as it becomes more left, it becomes more left because it becomes more hostile. But in Britain, that's not, that's not the story in Britain. In Britain, Britain, well, we have a similar pattern even without the Vietnam War. I mean, the academy in the UK, about 35% of uh, professors voted conservative in the late 19. 19- 60s so when you know the, the cultural revolution starts here now it's i mean now it's below single it's definitely in single figures and it's shrinking and obviously even amongst those single figures disproportionate number are going to be older who are moving out so amongst the younger people i mean it's just conquest law and these things once once an, once an institution becomes kind of ideologically dominated by one group then people who oppose that either they keep quiet or they leave or they're not hired i mean there is vast amounts of evidence about uh, employment bias by both sides. People tend to employ people who agree with them. So once this, um, once you're you know in an organisation, you're in you know the common room, the coffee room, whatever, and, and people just instinctively talk in a way that assumes everyone else agrees with you. People okay. with a minority view would just start to disappear, and then once the institution becomes basically politically homogenous, it then becomes politically intolerant, and that's what's happening in academia, where there's you know so few conservatives, they just sort of keep their mouths shut, don't they? But I think it's the same generally in the art world, probably is there's a similar dynamic going on. We hear all the time conservatives saying, oh, you're not allowed to talk about this, you're not allowed to talk about that. And at times that feels a bit whingy and just not true. When you think, it actually, yeah. you can talk about it. I mean, there are certain things, there are certain issues, maybe, I think the gender issue is a bit of a third rail because there's a level of energy in the attack that you'll get. Yeah. But a lot of stuff, you can talk about it within certain parameters. How do you feel personally constrained in your speech? So yeah, to, to a certain extent. I mean, I, I can say. I mean, it's my job to sort of say. And I, can, I mean, it's, it all depends on the circumstances. The last two months, it definitely felt ramped up a lot bit. And I've I've received lots of messages from people saying, "Listen, I, I know I can't for my job. I can't even say anything about the the BLM thing because to me, it felt it feels really scary and slightly." Uh, slightly authoritarian and I disagree with it but there have been lots of people sacked over that I mean for, for something for people to be silenced you don't need every single person to be punished you know you just need the occasional person to have a campaign driven against them and that has a chilling effect and it all depends on your circumstances you know if you need your job and you can get sacked for having the wrong opinion mm-hmm. that's really that really is going to keep you quiet I mean if you're JK Rowling yes your publishers aren't going to drop you because you can make them a million pounds so I mean, even Mel Gibson can get away with not being cancelled. And he says something like a thousand times more outrageous than anyone because he still makes people money. But it comes down to the thing, if you're not independently wealthy, then the fear of um, 
maybe not losing your job, but being socially sanctioned in some way is is a genuine fear. And also, there is just the, the, the demoralising effect when when all the when all the institutions are sort of in one voice saying, you know, oh, we'll take the knee or we support this movement. And and if you don't support this movement, and a lot of people don't, they find it very contentious and quite extreme movement. Um, and when I say a lot of people, I obviously mean me. That's just my way of saying me. And <laughs> Are decent, respectable, reasonable people. Yeah, yeah, just your average. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then, then you know, you are, but you you are inclined to think, well, hold on a minute, where's where's my representation then? Where's you know, what about what about me? You know, if, if all the powers that be believe something which I think is fundamentally untrue, then that's going to demoralise you in terms of wanting to speak up. I mean, you know, this BLM thing, it, it sort of gets into people's, you know, one one indicator for me of of sort of civil decline is when people bring their politics into whatsapp groups which have nothing to do with politics yeah. you know, local whatsapp group people start talking about oh we're gonna we're gonna take the knee and we're gonna do this and, and i'm saying there used to be a rule you know don't mention politics and religion in pubs because there are sort of like civil rules people people are going to strongly disagree with you and it's that now is that assumption that if you live in certain social networks everyone will agree with you because everyone you talk to agrees with you um, is, is it maybe something more than that? Is this actually simply also a manifestation of a fundamental difference in viewing the world between the left and the right? When Oakshot talks about politics, for example, he talks about the world of politics and the modality. It's, it's, it is, it's only one way of being in the world. There are many other different ways. And it, we should restrict that world to itself. Right. But for the left, the personal is political. Yeah, but there's, there's total, it's a total thing and it goes into every area, education, um, and it goes into family as well. You know, there's the classic one is, you know, people talking these, these very po-faced New York Times articles about, oh, this seven-year-old said to me, you know, gender is just a social construct. And, you know, obviously these children are parroting back what their parents mm -hmm. told them. But there was one the other day, Alistair Campbell, the, you know, Tony Blair's former henchman, yes. tweeting this letter from a six-year-old about how Boris Johnson wants to starve poor people to death. Like, who does that? Who talks to their six-year-old like that? My six-year-old, I think he might know who Boris Johnson is. He wouldn't have a clue about politics. He has very strong views about Ninjago and, you know, Thomas the Tank Engine. But he certainly wouldn't have an opinion. I wouldn't indoctrinate him that. Because I think there is certain... Firstly, I want him to have a childhood. And um, there are certain areas where we don't bring politics into everyday life because it's not religion. You know, religion is your <coughs> moral... Yeah. Your moral oxygen, your moral atmosphere, it's everything you believe in, that's your faith. So when politics takes the place of faith, uh, then I think, you know, you're into a very bad, bad place. But it, it, isn't it incredibly corrosive for our capacity to live together in a civil society when there is no space that you can go into which is not contested? Yeah. First of all, in, in the Premiership starts up again. I don't know if you're interested in football, I'm not particularly. No, 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 I, yeah, I'm also quite annoyed about what they're doing as well. And there is, and I think... The, 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 the largest sporting organisation in Ireland is a thing called the GAA, it's the Gaelic yeah. Athletic Association, and it runs hurling and football and those things. And it has a very, very strict rule. No political manifestations or, or demonstrations are part of it. From the beginning of it, it was to be a sporting cultural organisation based in the community and non-sectarian. So at some, I can't remember, it was the last referendum, the referendum before somebody in one of the stadiums, they brought in post banners. And they, those, the banners were taken away and they said, no, you can't do that here. 
And I think that's really important because while I understand the people say, well, this is a really important issue and we, this is, we yeah. want to demonstrate how we're feeling and this is a great place to get people. No, you have to sacrifice those spaces because if you lose those spaces... It's a shared civil space for everyone. How can we talk to each other again? How can I find somebody from Manchester United and say, ha, finally... We have we're on the roll again, and we're going to act. Even though you tried, you, you brought COVID nineteen to stop Liverpool winning the title. It failed. We're going to win the title, and we're going to come back, and we're going to be leading again. That'll be, uh, yeah. But they'll bring in politics into that, you know, in, into that otherwise reasonable discussion. Remember, Robbie Fowler did a, you know, he revealed his T-shirt like fifteen years ago and support the Liverpool Dockers, and they completely threw everything at him. You know, he got fined a huge amount. I mean, it was probably yeah. only like a day's wages for a footballer. <laughs> And, you know, they said, oh, well, football has no place in politics. And, you know, Arsenal gave their man a telling off when he supported Uyghurs in China. And now, you know, now they're just getting completely involved with the whole, what is a political movement? And I just think, well, why are you doing that? You're just alienating those of your fans. This is, this is not, you don't bring politics into every area of life. That's what happens in totalitarian societies. But also, isn't it going to make life just plain exhausting? Yeah. Just absolutely. Right, isn't it? That's the thing that, you know, in America, the, the online thing is like, people talk about race, they just say, I'm just so tired, like tired, I'm just so tired, the, the emotional stuff. I mean, yes, it is boring listening to you people just going on about it. It's tiring. But uh, I'm interested in your perception of the mechanism in Britain, the mechanism which, which brings the arts from where it was to the, where it is, the mechanism that brings comedy. I'm, I'm a comedy nut. I love my comedy. And I think, I think you say in the book or something, uh, uh, in the 1970s, if you looked at stand-ups in the 1970s in Britain, they tend to be what you would say conservative. Working-class uh, men from, you know... Some of it not... Kind of thing. Of it, you know, you'd say not very nice conservative. Yeah, uh, no, no, some of them were like, really quite nasty, but... And then you have this, the, 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 you have the new comedy coming in, and, and now we have this new, new comedy where people don't laugh, they applaud. Anti-comedy, it's called. Yes, because it doesn't have to be funny. But... I don't know how scientific this was. Somebody said that 97% of stand-up comedians are on the left. Only 97. <laughs> uh, how, did, how did we get there? How did you get I mean, because I'm sure it's the same here. Yeah, yeah, it's the same all over. Ah, Is there... I, mean, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It became a, it came sort of rebellion. Well, it starts off as a rebellion, you know, a rebellious movement. It was a young person's, young man's particular movement where from the 60s with, you know, the Cambridge comedians then the early 80s and you have alternative comedy it was a rebellion it was making fun of the powers that be but at some point these people rebellion became the powers that be and now um there's a kind of fundamental unwillingness to accept that you're actually the you're actually the man now you're the establishment but they love that this is this is part of the narrative they love to still describe themselves and are described by the by the medium as the the plucky insurgents throwing themselves on the on the battlements of power, when in fact they're the people in power. Yeah, and, but this and is you, central to their, their their identity. You wouldn't satirize people who are actually in power because you never work again. It wouldn't be very, you know. It, it's you know, it's like in uh, after the revolution in France, and the play, the theatres were full of these fighting satires about the Catholic Church. You know, by this stage, Robespierre was in charge. You know, you could say anything you like about the church. There's no, there's nothing daring then. Um, and British comedy is, is very much now just, it's, you know, it's laughing at the out group. It's laughing at particular, less educated people. You know, I, I know conservatives sound really boring when they go on about, you know, 
the elitism and snobbery of the left, because I think it sounds often disingenuous. But especially since Brexit, it has basically been that. I mean, it's all laughing about people who live in small rundown towns in the Midlands and North who, who are just unenlightened. But they and, talk about punching up, but this is not punching up. Yeah, it's not, it's not punching up at all. So it's just very, it's just, I don't know. I find it very boring, but I don't listen, I listen to any radio on, I mean, any radio comedy or, or TV comedy anymore. But then I just wonder, is that me just becoming a grumpy middle-aged man? It's just my dad, really, isn't it? I I still do, but I just, I tend to sort it. I tend to go for those people that I'm, it's because a lot of it, it's not, if a joke is funny, it's funny. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It could be, you know, it could be Engels. Maybe he was an absolute hoot. People stand around and say, God, Fred, he's hilarious. And maybe exactly. if you, he, he, if it's funny, it's funny. My problem is a lot of the stuff just, it's just not funny. Yeah. It's painful. And you can see it coming away. And I am sorry, do you have to, what, do, we, do we really need another Trump joke, which is all they're saying, you come on a panel show and you say, Trump is stupid and the people who voted for him are stupid and probably racist. Yeah. God, that took so much writing. Hey, it's just out of the Daily Mail. Eh? Yeah. It's, um, I don't know, but I don't know what's, what, would, what genuinely edgy comedy would be like. Would it, you know, what, would, what would you make fun of? Or if we just move away from political comedy at all and everything would just be sort of, you know, comedy of manners. I mean, that's what happened in ancient Athens. You know, you look at classical Athenian comedy, it's all about fighting comedy about this group and this group. But then you go into Hellenistic periods and it's just jokes about the mother-in-law and farting and, mm-hmm. you know, comedy of manners. Because people just got bored with political comedy. They only take a certain amount after all. Then they just got tired of it, I guess. Moving on, again, Sticky, to what extent to you is conservatism synonymous with the Conservative Party? Tough one. Um, I would say conservatism in Britain, or England anyway, is probably actually closer to the Church of England. Um, that, is, that is the historic link. Uh, the Conservative Party obviously has been for a while, it's a sort of alliance between conservatives and liberals, you know, right liberals in the sort of uh, libertarian thatch right sense. And, and that's, that's a sort of an uneasy, unlikely alliance a lot of the time, but they were sort of, you know, it's an anti-socialist alliance, right? So that's what the Conservative Party is for. Most people don't feel very emotional about it. They just think it's to stop socialists getting to power. Um, you think, is it, does it tell us something that Thatcher's favourite Prime Minister is not Lord Salisbury? No, I think exactly. It's Gladstone. Yeah, I mean, Thatcher was a liberal. By every, I mean, you know, she was hated by people who identify as liberal, but she was a right liberal, uh, you know, a right-wing liberal, her government didn't enact any sort of socially conservative policies in the 80s. I mean, I mentioned the one thing they, they remembered is Section 28, and that's, and that's come the Tories, but that's pretty much the only thing they did in that regard. Um, she had no sense. I, I mean, I think that was a good idea, I should add, but, um, but you know, it was a period of increased liberalisation in every on economic and social. And so, I mean, she was very much in that. And she came from a Methodist background, even. She is from that um, liberal tradition, which is one wing of the Conservative Party. After the collapse of the Liberals in, in the first say, couple of decades of, in the 20th century, you have that migration, don't you? Yeah. But mi- migration of the, of the fiscally conservative, free trade, uh, Gladstonian Liberal into the Tory party. And that then you have this... But conservatism isn't in and of itself necessarily economically liberal, is it? I mean, there is that the red Tory tradition that I suppose Disraeli and his uh, what's the God the first the famous phrase uh, 
one England single. What is it? Oh yeah, you were, um, from Um Again, I'm terrible at quotes. Anyway, um, it, I mean, I, I sort of start, you know, it's that, that kind of Ruskin tradition of, you know, the red Toryism, um, which my dad was a big sort of fan of. And that's the sort of autobiographical um, aspect of the book. He, I used to think he was a sort of complete crankery when I was younger. But he believed in this very red Tory vision. Britain is very pro-railway. Um, he thought the market would destroy uh, a lot of the things he loved if it was left, left to its own devices. So, you know, he didn't trust the free market. He didn't think that's what it should all be about. He was particularly upset by the way that town planners had destroyed many cities in, Britain, in England. He was very anti-car. Which again, I thought was a very crankish thing. But as I get in late in the book, and I realise I'm becoming my dad a little bit, and I think you know maybe he's right about that because this. The, what, I think it's, I think it was David Willits who coined it the conservative dilemma. You know, that's conservative economic policies sort of end up destroying everything conservatives believe in because it makes the world more liberal. And I think that's now accelerating. You know, the whole woke capital thing is an extreme example of that, where big companies based in the US are pushing very, very aggressively progressive politics. They, you know, um, and I, I sort of agree with the Tucker Carlson thing that, you know, big business is now a bigger threat to your freedom and way of life than big government is. Um, I think that's, the Willits quote is interesting because many years ago, you know, I was reading Schumpeter and just, I'd read bits and pieces about him and read little bits in. What I understood, what I, understood I, I, I don't know. But I came away, okay, he's not on our team because Schumpeter says ultimately um, capitalism will, will, will fail. It will be eaten in a sense by, by the left. And he also said that you know, the, the, there are two systems, both could work. I think he was just wrong on that because I think he got the, you know, the, the, the problem of calculation wrong. He got a lot right but, though. <laughs> but the thing is, years later I came back and I said, and reading exactly the same thing, thinking, hold on, he's actually precisely right. Yeah. That it is the, the success of capitalism in the, in the 20th century produces all of this surplus wealth, this extra time, brings all of these people into education, which who, would never have been in education, brings them into the academy and creates this massively expanded academy. Who then look out into the world, and these are the people who, who form the, the minds and the opinions of youth going out into the, in, into part of place, and what they constant they consistently see is people who are not as worthy as themselves being rewarded, people in the futures market, people in banking, people in insurance, or whatever it is, but people who are far less worthy than them, and they they arrive at the obvious conclusion that the system is is wrong, the system is is flawed and failed. And that it is the it is precisely the success of capitalism that produces this this resentful population within itself, which actually leads to its own downfall, and yeah. ultimately to a form of social democracy, if you like, of a redistribution of social democracy, and and an, an, an academic and cultural elite, which is detached from the rest. And I think that. I think there's an element. I think that when I look around, I see anyone an element of truth in that, an element of prophecy. Oh, that's, that, that's, I mean, that's definitely prophetic. And you know, there's a Christopher Lash as well. You know, he saw the system, the economic system, that produced this elite that was completely cut off socially and culturally from the rest of society and physically as well. 
geographically. Um, and they would almost, you know, rebel against the rest of society because they wouldn't be constrained by them anymore. And, and that's sort of, in a sense, what's happening in, in the United States. Obviously, most of the, sort of, a lot of the rioting is amongst Af in African-American areas, but the biggest pusher is amongst upper middle class graduates. You know, it's the elites who are doing it. That's where it's happening. I don't know, um, have, you, have you seen the work that's been done on image and attitudes to your own class, your own race? And yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the upper middle class in America are so extreme, uh, extreme on the left. And, yeah. and that's, um, so I think all those critiques of capitalism have turned out to be pretty good, pretty accurate. Uh, and my own, my own journey was, you know, towards being a much more sort of liberal, conservative, free marketeer. So thinking that's, um, you know, it's more complicated than that. And, and the, the market does produce these really unfortunate outcomes. Um, it's a weird moment, isn't it, that you, when you first think, you know what, maybe the most important thing in the world isn't maximizing the increase of GDP. Yeah, especially not maximizing it by another 0.1% next year, in exchange for which you're going to have problems down the line which your children and grandchildren are going to have to deal with. Okay. Um, that's the Here's posterity thing. You know, that, that's the one word that, that we really do lack a lot in debate is posterity. Almost no one talks about it. You know, it's, in, it's there in the US Constitution, but politicians and anyone with an interest in the future, it should be about posterity. What do we leave our grandchildren in 50 years' time? You know, for me, conservatism is about the issue of planting a tree that you will never see. Yeah, that's what it comes down to that image, and I don't think we're very future-minded in that sense. Certainly, conservative governments aren't. They're, they're, they're interested in winning the election within five years, and, um, and that well, means keeping the economy rolling. Right? We're not future-minded, but we're not past-minded either, are we? No, and the two we're are probably not. Mean, posterity, are. yes. But another word I'd say to you: gratitude has disappeared. Yeah. The sense of gratitude to the people who came before us to, for what we've been given. Yeah. I read an interesting paper that said, I don't know how this, one of these psychology studies that have probably been discredited now, that have been re replicated, but about thinking about the struggles of your ancestors, a good positive effect on your mental well-being. Because whenever you're stuck at your desk thinking, oh, this is oh, another day at my job. And then you think, yeah. well, okay, my great-great-grandfather, you know, was making matchsticks in a, in a factory, being blinded by whatever it was, dying age 36 of iron lung. He did that so I could... I could get this far. Yeah, I mean, we are, it takes many, many years to get a civilization as advanced as ours in the state it is for us to, to enjoy it. And we should enjoy it. And it's much easier to knock these things down than it is to build them, which takes a long, long time. There is something bizarre, almost pathological, about the sight of a, a young person in Yale talking about the fact that they're exhausted by having yeah. to live in that racist structure every day basically just trying to stay alive yeah it's just so hard i mean living in connecticut and you're part of the zero point here's okay I, I, here's something is it is it's optimistic is it optimistic? maybe anyway you said that you're talking about you know political finding political home and the evolution of politics where did people go what to and, and politics has had in a sense become has stuck in a lot of the western world there's this everybody seems to be singing off the same hymn sheet ultimately with very little difference leaving aside the rights or the wrongs of the issue brexit has thrown 
some cats amongst pigeons. If you look at the way the values, you have, a, you had a captive labor vote in parts of the Midlands and the North, which because it could not imagine itself voting anything except labor, was essentially powerless because they, in the same ways, the Democrats can assume they will get the, the African American vote. So in practice, they don't actually have to do anything for them because it's there. But as the left, as the Labour Party in, in the Southeast has become more progressive and less, shall we say, Methodist socialist, yeah, the capacity of someone like Johnson or the capacity for the, the Tory party to move to the left on economics while staying, shall we say, conservative on social, on more social issues has created an opportunity, hasn't it? Yeah, they were very, um, it, I mean, it turned out, uh, it turned out very well for them electorally because, you know, this, I mean, there, there was this kind of, you know, seismic movement in the political scape happening anyway, and it's been happening since at least the 1990s, really. You know, it's now called the Great, Great Realignment, which is where the, for various economic and social reasons, the sort of middle class is moving to the left and the working class moving to the right. Uh, and it's already happened in the States with the Republican Party becoming the sort of more working class party. And that was going to happen anyway in Britain. But as Brexit just basically sped it up really, really quickly because of what it did is just create these two new political identities, which people felt much more comfortable identifying with and much more strongly about. Um, whereas people would never, you know, long term Labour Party voters uh, would never have themselves as voting Tory they could identify as leavers or Brexiteers whatever mm-hmm. until the moment came where the Tory party became the Brexit party then they would vote for them um, so yeah not electric and and it's easier because you know labor all the social studies labor leave voters you know and about a third of them voted leave had social values about the same as Tory remainers so they're quite conservative and they always were conservative that's one of the things I always you know what surprised me when I was a, when I was a kid, there was lots of my parents had a lot of Labour friends, but they also sort of London Labour voters, you know, who sort of worked in journalism or the theatre. I think they were what Ken Livingston called metropolitan perverts, you know, with very liberal social views. Um, and then when I grew up, you know, when I left school and actually met people from different backgrounds, and I met you know working class Labour voters, and I realised they're like easily as right wing as I am, like on every issue. They just want you know they want everything distributed more fairly as they could see it but on any kind of a social issue usually as right wing as i am they weren't they weren't at all unconservative but weren't, certainly weren't liberal um so i suppose yeah so they were able just to you know that was able to realign the party and the tory alliance was sort of lucky in that they were more united and they just happened to have just the right number of votes and they had a, a completely useless opposition which always helps isn't it um i mean corbyn i thought was very extreme but he was also terrible um as a leader but I mean, you know, if you in 1997, most of these seats that the, Tor- the Tories won, they were, you know, there were 65 percent, 70 percent Labour voting areas. They're overwhelmingly Labour voting, like mining areas. We would mean unimaginable for Tories to win those areas. Um, yeah, and I, think, I was as, as the addict does. I was up. I'd watch any election results night. I don't care where it is, Kazakhstan. And I was <laughs> up watching the the results coming in from Britain and from the in the last. Uh, UK, and results were coming in from mining villages on the north, the coast of the northeast, right. where literally there had it been labour since the seat came into existence. In oh yeah, since people were the vote, it's been labour. You know, since the twenties, all these places, Blythe Valley, uh, you know, Don Valley, um, 
all these places were you know heavily strongly labor i mean it'll be interesting to see i mean because you know i'm brexit i'm not really i have very mixed feelings about the whole thing there could be a big economic cost involved in it, it could turn out to be a bit of a the mirage for many people i think and there are a lot of contradictions between the sort of different types of supporters of Brexit. So I don't know if everyone's going to be happy. Have you got your second passport yet? Uh, you know, I still, I still had, used to have an Irish passport. I just, I just couldn't be bothered to renew it. Um, <laughs> it wasn't actually out of any principle. Actually, the, the reason I know I had to get a British one, I had an Irish one only until about 20. Mum always said it's always useful to have an Irish passport in case you're kidnapped. If the, <laughs> if the plane is hijacked, it's very neurotic. This is in the 70s, obviously. If the PLO hijacked your plane, you're Irish, they might let you out. Obviously, yeah. if your plane hijacked now, it doesn't matter what passport you've got, you're finished. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I think it was a bit more... But it's fine. When I, mean, when I went to Trieste, I got a massive upgrade in my room, a huge, enormous room, because I had an Irish passport. I said, oh, because we love James Joyce. Like, great. I was offered um, his job. James Joyce's job? Yeah, at the University of Trieste, uh, the um, le- le- lectureship. I was offered his job. But it paid around three quid, three quid fifty a week. So I said, no thanks. And they said, but it's James Joyce's. I said, yeah, but it was still three quid fifty a week. Yeah, I suppose they're, they're relying on the prestige a little bit, aren't they? I, well, the Italian universities, unless you're actually a, t- a professor, professor, right. the money is rubbish. Big shoes to fill as well, isn't it? It'd be like following Alex Ferguson, isn't it? A little bit. You're just like, I don't want to. Whatever I'm doing, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do it, really. Yeah, I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about Joyce. I think, um, I think Portrait is a is a great book um i think no i find it completely comprehensible but he is you know he is the most all, everywhere in trieste is like uh just the last bit i wanted to just talk very briefly about the situation the the, the madness of today yeah. um and in the context of an earlier but the diversity illusion where you talk about the the failures of the policy, the failures of of, of, of immigration policy in, in in the UK, and you talk, you you describe, for example, the windward uh, in you know, the the aspect, the expectations of what would happen, and then the reality of what actually did happen, numbers wise. And I mean, famously, Frau Merkel said when she talked about she talked about guest workers, the Gastarbeiten in in Germany. She says, "Oh, we never thought they'd stay." Yeah, which is a little bit behind there. Okay, uh, you know the old joke about the, you, 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 you get lost somewhere in, in Kerry uh, in, and you ask a local for directions. And you, and you don't start from here. Yeah, what, what, if I was going there, I wouldn't start from here. Obviously, I suppose there's a sense of that in, 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 in the UK today. Surely, okay, in practice, the UK is, in not, is not in the same place as the United States. It doesn't have the same cultural historical context as the United States. And in many ways, if you look at a lot across many metrics, race relations in the UK are better. Uh, if you look at, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing these days, but I know if you looked at the figures a few years ago for um, women, say, Afro- from an Afro-Caribbean heritage, the number of them who are in relationships with, with men who were white British was like 50%. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's an incredible amount. And if you talk to people who are friends of mine who started having families in, in London in the 90s, they would say that the children going to the local school were genuinely colorblind. Mm. It just color wasn't an issue. What I find weird and worrying in Ireland, and I think it's happening, is this desire to import an American model 
an American optic of what the problem is and of how we how, how we go forward. How do you see the issue in the, in England today? How how is it? What is the situation? Well, and allowing that you wouldn't start from here, but this is where we have to start from. Where do you go? I think the wouldn't start from here issue is that you know, no one who ever comes out with any policy ever accurately predicts what's going to happen. And then once something has happened, it's facts on the ground. And they say, there we go. It's there now. What are you going to do? You can't complain about it. It's, it's happened. Um, the problem we're now seeing, and it's a kind of acceleration of something that's happened before, especially with this protest. Okay, there's a man killed by police, possibly murdered by police, in a city 5,000 miles away from us. Mm-hmm. I haven't been allowed to see my mum. No one's been allowed to go to funerals, their family. No one's been allowed to do anything. We've all been locked down. Most people have paid it pretty much. 10,000, 100,000 people were allowed to turn up in London, break down lockdown and do a protest about a man being killed 5,000 miles away in a city which has nothing to do with us whatsoever. We have no control. Um, and no one seems... And Labour politicians went to this. And the Mayor of London didn't tell people not to go. The police, the head of police, not the head of police, one of the senior police in London said, if you're compelled to go away, mask. You're compelled to go to mask. No one's compelled to go to march. Um, so it's okay to completely break all the rules about a contagious disease and risk the lives of other people so that you can protest about something going on in another country. And then when I say to people, so, okay, you cannot possibly change anything that happens in America. America is a violent country in a violent continent. Police all across the, the Americas kill people in very large numbers. In Venezuela, they kill them hundreds of times in the United States. In Jamaica, they kill them in 400 times the race in the United States. In Brazil, likewise very similar numbers. This is just one violent country in a violent continent. What has it got to do with us exactly? And then the argument is, oh, well, you know, it's just racism generally. Okay, so it's just racism in the abstract. In what sense does the abstract racism of what happens in Britain or, or Ireland or Denmark or Holland, how does that compare to the story of the United States, which has a completely different history and a completely different narrative? Um, but their history is now completely almost cannibalizing our history. British people's history is being rewritten as American history. I mean, this is the annoying thing. You know, they, my, my kids, my eldest came back from school age, at the end of age year three, is it? Year three, when she's eight, she'd learned three historical characters in, in school, Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, and Rosa Parks. Really? And I said, Rosa Parks, why is the Rosa Parks story? That's an, a very powerful, compelling story, the African-American story, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, you know, the, the march to Selma, Alabama. But that is not our national story. It's completely another people's story, and it's almost nothing to do with us. And it doesn't actually have much bearing on, on the history of race relations in England, which are completely different. I mean, anyone who knows anything about um, England will know that as much as there was prejudice and racism as there is in every society, which is hard to, to explain to people, the story in Britain was just completely... There was never, ever the colour bar issue that it was in the United States. You know, we have our entire um, system, discrimination laws came about because American servicemen objected to being in the same hotel as West Indian cricketer and the British judge threw it out because he says there's no history of segregation in Britain. Don't, that is not the right. There's, you know, there aren't rules against intermarriage. So all those things, and I, I do generally wonder what percentage of young British people think there used to be segregation in Britain and there used to be um, lynchings in Britain. You know, I think we've entirely imported American historical narratives into our own history. And I, it's gonna, and I think it's going to spread 
Totally. So in a sense, it's sort of LARPing. I saw one picture of there's a black woman in Dublin, Miami, Dublin, Miami Court, and she had a sort of placard saying, am I next? As in, am I going to be shot next? I mean, the guards last no. killed someone in 2000 who was, had serious mental illness problems and he was firing a, sh a sort of shotgun at them. So how many people have the guards killed down the years? I mean, your chances of being killed by them are astronomical. It's just complete play acting. And it's actually dangerous play acting because you're giving people this idea that they are living in this Netflix series that is US politics and US cultural life. And by doing so, they're going to fulfill that prophecy by making um, that division happen. I was saying to, to a friend from me recently that there is a sense that these people are as much victims of American cultural globalization as the little girl that desperately wants the Disney princess doll. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fantasy they're being sold. And it's, they've bought and into it. And it's bizarre. And I think it's really worrying and dangerous because, okay, all the, all the usual things. There are racists here and there are racist acts and that's bad and we have laws and these things shouldn't happen and we should teach. Also, how many children in, in Ireland was... I don't know if you remember, if you ever came over when you were a kid. He, all the time. It was historically a, a very, very monochrome kind of a place. But in this, back from the 80s and the 90s, we consumed the BBC, we consumed American TV, American we Hollywood. Irish children grew up knowing, even if they didn't know anybody who didn't look quite like them, that racism was a very, very bad thing. Yeah. You know the old wild saying, if you don't want to make, if you want to make war, get rid of war, don't make it, immoral make it unfashionable yeah yeah and i think there's a deep truth to that that for most young people and the vast majority of young people and i say young i mean that people slightly younger than me yeah racism is just a bizarre notion and it's just wrong and deeply uncomfortable and if we impose and we have somebody here saying you know okay you may not have you may not be killing us but you've got your foot on our back yeah and there's a demand that we feel guilty we're being told, the Irish are being told to them and we should feel guilty for our, the way we've profited from the slave trade and the exploitation of Africa. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's just, and my, my worry is that you, you're going to say to people, many of whom just don't feel guilty and who won't say, you create resentments. It's a, Douglas Murray says, and I think he's right, you know, this is, race is a dangerous thing to start playing around with for the sake of political gain or advancement. Don't want to play this game. It's, um, I mean, my problem is, and I, I think I do address, I mean, the book's so long ago now, if I remember, but there are, there are unfortunately incentives in place. That means that people will always play that game. And how do you stop people continually playing it until it makes just, at best, just constant arguments at worst, something else? There are whole structures. I mean, you know, the BBC, the radio, every... every Every day, usually, there'll be something about, oh, you know, there's, there's inequality at this rate, there's inequality at this thing, so you know, universities aren't allowing enough people here, and the police are arresting more people. So there's this pursuit of equality of outcomes, which is itself impossible to achieve. But also, inequality of outcomes is fine if minorities do better than the average. That's great. That's the, Britain's amazing, you know, that these people are so hardworking. If they do worse than the average, that's outrageous. We must have more. Um, more work needs to be done as that terrifying phrase goes so we need to have a conversation it's just what is the end point the only end point is where uh, every minority does better than the average 
at everything. And until that happens, um, there will be constant, <coughs> constant striving for perfectibility. But also, you know, diversity is going to always increase unless someone doesn't increase it. Even without immigration, it's going to constantly increase. The point is, when, at what point are people allowed to say, okay, that's enough? Is there an end point? Is anyone actually allowed to say, um, that's enough now? You know, I think the country's changed enough as it is. There is no end point. There is no acceptable point to say that. Because even if you, so however, you know, gently you phrase that, um, it makes you on the wrong side of history, <laughs> to use a phrase. You and, you know, diversity is always good. So if something's always good, then there must be more of it always. There must be always more pressure to have more of it. Um, and if equality is good, by which equality they mean more, uh, basically white English people doing worse relatively, then that must always be pushed. Um, there's no sense that things are actually usually a trade-off. I mean, and that's, again, that comes down to the utopian idea. You know, equality and diversity are trade-offs with each other. They go against each other. That has been known since you know, the beginning of time. Diversity used to be another word for inequality. We were talking about the diversity of talents of people. Yeah. Um, and diversity goes against solidarity in, in a community. The more diverse it is, the less people care about um, communal shared institutions and the less they care about things. So these things counteract with each other. And I do sense there is this BLM thing. I mean, everyone just, you know, the kind of the non-player character response, you know, that sort of phrase about, oh, well, you know, BLM are just against racism. They're just against racism. So you must be against racism. You know, the BLM marchers go through London and people see footage of three young black guys setting fire to Union Jack on the cenotaph, which is the memorial to all our grandfathers and great grandfathers who died in the war. So how on earth is that going to reduce racism exactly? That's the most... Nothing about these demonstrations has reduced hatred on any level between politics or different groups. It's not going to end in a happy way. Okay, just um, I would finish on this with it. Okay, if it's not reducing racism, is it possible that it's not really about it's not it's not about that anyway? But this is rather some kind of a a liturgy or a performance, and that sure. people are engaging in it purely from some for some kind of psychic sense. Yeah, of, I mean it's I really. I mean, you know, you're, the thing, the analogy about the elephant and the rider, I mean, the, the, the rider's been, the elephant's run off long ago and the rider's been found in a ditch somewhere. I mean, this, this is emotions controlling. You can, you can show people all the statistics they like about police shootings and race because, you know, they say it's about race and police. There's loads and loads of statistics about violence amongst police and amongst criminals in the United States, which shows it's a very, very contentious issue. Uh, whether they are more likely to profile and shoot African-Americans. It's, it's a very thin thing. America's a very violent country. But there's no way of even bringing this issue, you could, even raising that issue rationally to people, it's just going to make no effect whatsoever. Because this is a deeply emotional issue. Racism is wrong. It's the most central wrong thing. Um, quality of outcomes between groups is a sacred value. I mean, that is the central thing of, you know, the great awakening is about all groups are equal. And if there is an inequality of outcomes, it must be down to some systemic or systematic uh, institutional racism, which is completely unfalsifiable. And it is a priori correct and true because we say it's true. And if you disagree, it's true. You must be in denial. Um, these are these are sacred values, and and now we, we see, you know, the more crazy, extreme examples that people the sort of mock flagellation, um, yeah. and those white people holding 
guards so you know there can be a black people only garden in Seattle I mean anyone I mean I'm sure most people with reasonable goodwill and sanity look at that and say that's not really a healthy development that's those are people with sort of psychological issues which have been somehow channeled into their view of race it's a kind of weird cultish movement well, um, but I think it's more, I think it's not an isolated cult movement. It's the, it's the extreme variation of a quite widespread um, cultish sort of. Widespread, but not, I suspect, happening much in China. Anyway. No. It's, I mean, the irony is, you know, the obsession of, uh, you know, the New York Times-led Anglo commentariats, their obsession with white, white racism, with white supremacy, what it really is, is white narcissism, because it's all about people who've grown up reading To Kill a Mockingbird, and they want to be the saviour and the goodie who saves the helpless person of colour from the white racist. Um, they're not interested in racism when it's in the Middle East or China or India. And these countries are far, far more racist than the United States, especially the United States or Western Europe. I mean, by any measure, please, if you came up with these suggestions um, in China or India, or the Arab world, you know, we're going to empower these minorities and we're going to put up statues of black people and we're going to, you know, East Asians shouldn't be dominant. They would, it would, it would be beyond laughter. It would be so, just so absurd, an idea, but it's a kind of white narcissism that, you know, we are, we are these more enlightened people that we're going to, you know, go above these, these human prejudices and eliminate them and, you know, save the world. It's, it's a very strange, um, Indeed, but saving the world is always is always a good place to end. However, next time we're talking to Ed, he's going to be telling us about his happy fun time side. When he's yeah, yeah, and uh, I think all about how to, how to pull women, how to pull women, and his plan to save the world, which he says yeah. apparently it's an absolute cracker. But until yeah. then, I'd like to thank Ed West for this right. conversation. I'd like to thank Great you for joining us, and hope to see you soon in the future. But for the same, for the time being, stay safe. And bye-bye.